Hello, my name is Christine Murray and welcome to the Developer Podcast, where we talk about how to make cities worth living in, which often has to do with the spaces between the buildings as much as the buildings themselves. This is a very special edition of the Developer Podcast as we celebrate our 100th episode. Thank you so much to our organization members, Patreons, and supporters and listeners, and especially to my producer, Simon Mercer, and Fortet for providing our music, which has seen us through to this 100th episode. It's been an amazing journey, and to celebrate, I'm actually going to be taking a backseat in the next conversation, seating my chair to Carolyn Steele, the leading thinker on food and cities. A London-based architect and academic, her award-winning books include Hungry City, How Food Shapes Our Lives, and Zootopia, How Food Can Save the World. Carolyn's going to be chairing the discussion with Sophia Craxton, a food anthropologist with over 30 years' experience, and Stephen Witherford, the founder of Witherford Watson Mann Architects. They're going to be talking about their work on Appleby Blue, a new almshouse in London run by United St. Saviour's Charity, which offers beautiful, spacious homes in a lively community that places food at the heart of building connection. I hope you enjoy it. Let's listen in. Uh, hello, everyone. My name is Carolyn Steele. I'm an architect who writes about food or a food writer who writes about architecture. I'm not sure which. Um, and it's my very, very great pleasure to be discussing um, on the podcast today a building called Appleby Blue, which I believe is really a model that's going to resonate as we go forward in terms of transforming the way we think about uh, sheltered housing and social housing um, for the elderly and indeed for um, everyone in general. Um, it's a building by Witherford Watson Mann. And I'm delighted to have uh, the lead architect and co-founder, Stephen Witherford, with us today. And it's the, the client was United St. Saviour's Charity um, in Southwark. And we'll explain a little bit more about, well, I hope Stephen will explain a little bit more about uh, how fundamental the client-architect relationship was in creating this building. But just to paint a bit of a picture for you, and I mean, just to say as well that we also have, I'm delighted to say, Sophia Craxton with us, who was responsible or is responsible for a food-related program within the building, and we'll be talking a lot about that today as well. Just to set the scene, Appleby Blue is uh, a mid-scaled building on Southwark Park Road, uh, and it's made of uh, Danish bluish uh, brown brick, and it's got these huge solid oak frame windows. Um, and when you approach it for the first time, it just looks like a sort of unusually well-designed block of flats, really. Um, it's only when you enter it that you really start to feel that this is something different and radical. Um, because instead of the sort of usual, I don't know, you might expect a sort of slightly cramped desultory entry space, you've got this very generous, gracious glazed ramp that goes up um, past a cheerily staffed residence office. And most startlingly to me, a, a, an enviably large and well-equipped community kitchen, um, and then leading into this incredibly gracious, double-height public space, um, looking onto a courtyard garden, which has got mature trees in it. It's even got a stream running through it. Um, 
and the, the public spaces uh, inhabited or furnished with these oversized, very comfortable armchairs and large uh, communal dining tables. Um, and then as you move up through the building, you see that the, the space actually is it's surrounded by these glazed galleries or walkways, very generous walkways that you know, feels to me a bit like, I don't know if you know uh, Alvar Alto's Sainat Salon, town hall but you know this kind of um <laughs> the architects among you might do um but these very generous social spaces with wooden benches in them and planters and so on um overlooking this amazing second story roof garden uh, so the building sort of steps down from five stories uh on its street size down to two stories uh, to reflect the sort of the lower scale of the victorian housing beyond um and this public room is fully glazed and it looks directly onto um, Southwark Park Road and indeed a bus stop which is directly outside and it's big I mean it's a proper decent sized space it's woodlined uh, it's got an oak floor um, and so you can see straight through from the right through from the street to the garden um, and this is a space where a lot of activities are going on there's keep fit classes there's communal meals happening and so on um, and it just feels like a very you know like a luxury hotel or something I mean it's extraordinary but this is actually um, sheltered social housing um, built by the clients, United St. Saviours, in the borough of Southwark. Um, so this is just extraordinary. Um, now, I've got, as I say, Stephen Witherford, the project architect, with me here. Um, and Stephen, I know that your, your basic idea behind this building was that you were going to rethink the almshouse. In fact, this is an almshouse, I should have said that, um, for the 21st century. Um, and to make the whole model of the almshouse more active and socially engaged and really fit for an era in which, you know, the average octogenarian is as likely to skydive as they are to sit in their room and knit. And knit. So I wonder whether you could, if I've given an adequate description of your amazing building, which I'm sure I haven't, if you could describe for us, you know, what, how this came about. How have we got this extraordinary building in the middle of Southwark? Thank you, Karen. I haven't met any of the skydiving residents yet, but <laughs> there is an evolving there is an evolving <laughs> program for the uh, for the residents. So let's put that one on the table. Um, well, we originally uh, I was asked to via a sort of friend to if I would attend uh, her board away day for uh, the charity United St. Saviors, as you rightly say, a kind of almost five hundred year old charity that were based. Uh, in uh, Southwark, uh, Bankside, to be more specific, uh, not far from Tate Modern, for those who know it. And uh, and during this away day, it was actually in uh, the new library building in Canada Water, um, I was asked the question by the board, um, what did I imagine a kind of housing for older people uh, might look like or what qualities might it kind of embody um and uh and i was fresh off the back of having uh, uh completed the astley castle project in the office here uh, and had the great benefit of being able to read the first six months uh visitor book uh of um things people who'd stayed there had written and that had an incredible kind of effect on my understanding of just what residing in a place with uh, some very, in a way, some very core qualities uh, of landscape, 
light movement of the day, the seasons, the sun, uh, uh, in a kind of, in a sort of joyful and dignified way, how that felt and what it kind of, what it was conducive to. Uh, so most of this workshop was spent speaking about uh, natural materials, the movement of the sun, relationship to nature, uh, sociability and opportunities for that, deinstitutionalizing buildings, that kind of a conversation. And at the very end of it, and these various words and themes between the group had been pinned up around the walls of this library room. And at the end, uh, the... Uh, the, the then chief exec of the charity said, well, if we wanted to write a brief for a new almshouse, what would you recommend? And I said, well, we should collect all these post-it notes up from around the walls and just type them into, into the machine. And that's sort of what happened. And then there was a, a small invited competition, which we were selected to then develop a project with the charity and its board. And that's what happened. It coincided uh, with... Um, some quite powerful reports. Age UK had just released a report on, uh, which to me was just incredibly shocking, uh, on how despite the um, the densification of cities, uh, huge programmes of new building and public space initiatives, uh, loneliness was one of Britain's uh, biggest killers. Um, and more and more people particularly older people were living in severe isolation and i found it very hard to reconcile the rhetoric of the city making that was being discussed with this sort of profound sort of uh, public outcome and uh, along with that there was also a report by the institute for public policy research um, i think it was called the generation strain care in an aging society which which just talked about this focus on a medicalized solutions for older people mm. um, for solving physical ailments, uh, but this complete absence of any real conversation about what it takes to lead a decent life. And in, in that sense, and this really was the kind of, I think the heart and remains the heart of the project, how leading a good life draws on values of mutual support uh, and neighbourhood and community networks, as opposed to, I suppose, in a way, that's a kind of integrated kind of understanding of how we all exist, as opposed to a kind of medicalised approach, which is a sort of, you know, uh, it's a form of isolation where you're treated as an individual uh, for your own specific ailments. Uh, and that really did set the scene for the project. Mm. Well, you said so many extraordinary things there and with which I profoundly agree. And I think for me, one of the most amazing things you've done with this building is that you really have, I mean, you know, I've always, or for many years have been saying, you know, the fundamental uh, role of architecture is to help people lead better lives. But often that gets quite lost in a sort of, oh, should we have blue glass or gray glass or, you know, whatever. So I, and I think that really resonates strongly in the building. Um, and something else that you said that I think is really important is this business of loneliness and what does it take to live a good life, you know, for everybody, not just sort of people who are ageing. And, and interesting, I'm going to actually bring in the food theme here because, um, of course, we have Sophia Craxton with us, a food uh, anthropologist and scientist. Um, and Sophia, wonderful to, to speak to you. And you speak about, 
using food as an instrument to bring people together. So I wonder whether you could um, elucidate on that a little bit for us. Yes, thank you very much. Um, yes, food, you know, there are so many aspects about food and uh, it's, 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 it's really an instrument for attracting people. It's, uh, uh, somebody mentioned the other day the perfect sentence, food is the glue. And literally, it's a, it's, a, it's a glue that brings people together. People love, obviously, they love eating. Some people love cooking. Um, some people feel very um, scared about cooking because, you know, there is all these chefs and all these uh, programs and stuff, and people can be, like, feel a bit funny. But if you um, erase all of that, it's all about creating community. You People cook together. So basically, the way I see uh, food as an instrument for creating community is the excuse. We're going to be cooking food, we're going to be eating food, and, the uh, and, and what we want to do is just basically to bring people together. I have a lovely example from uh, last week at Appleby Blue. I haven't mentioned who I am. I am the uh, manager for the kitchen and the garden in uh, the community kitchen, the community garden at Appleby Blue. And basically what we do is we use people, uh, we use food to bring people together and cook. And last week was a perfect example. Um, it's uh, Black History Month and we wanted to do something nice and we have got people from all kinds of backgrounds in the in the almshouse. And um, there are people from Africa, people from the from Afro-Caribbean countries. So we thought we would have uh, jollof rice. So we were going to do um, uh, jollof rice. It com comes from Africa. There are some African people, and we we're going to make Afro-Caribbean food as well. So um, people are very uh, territorial about what my family makes the best jollof rice or my country makes, makes the best jollof rice. <laughs> and we're very lucky to interact with people in the uh, in the houses. People from Sierra Leone, Nigeria, Ghana, various countries, they came along and, uh, and we cooked together. And it was an absolute ball what we had. It was absolutely fantastic. Everybody came down, um, English people, people from Africa, they cooked together and... Um, and what we ended up with was a community kitchen with neighbors who have, some of them have never talked to each other because they feel shy about each other, but they mm. were cooking with food and, uh, and eating. And the food was delicious and we had the best time. That is incredibly inspiring. I wish I'd been there. I yes. love jollof rice. <laughs> oh my God, it was so delicious. <laughs> but so, um, I actually want to come back to Stephen because hearing about Sophia and what she's doing in the kitchen, I mean, obviously this must be music to your ears because you've, you've planned for all this. You know, food was in your thinking from very, very early on. I'd love to hear about you know, how you developed that idea that food could be a way of, you know, bringing this sort of, I, you say that one of the key um, ideas behind Appleby Blue is you want to build a community and you know how you got this idea of using food and how you incorporated it into the building and enable the kind of amazing event that uh, Sophia was just describing. Yeah I like this description of a, a jollof as opposed to a bake-off um, <laughs> the uh, uh, and and uh, and I do as you say I don't know about music to my ears. I just find it very, I find the whole thing very moving. And I think, um, as you rightly uh, suggest, Carolyn, it's kind of projects like this start off as words and post-it notes 
and misunderstandings and accidents. Um, uh, and I think it's important to sort of to speak about those things because when people come and visit a building and talk about it like we are now, it just looks like, oh, of course you'd do this. It's like, mm. you know, this feels great. Um, but we we had never designed a building uh, uh, specifically for older people before. We'd never done an almshouse and the charity hadn't built their own almshouse uh, for several hundred years. So you putting two people together, there was clearly uh, a kind of a mutual recognition that there were shared values, uh, uh, particularly around the ideas of sort of sociability and how that might feel. Uh, but really, we were kind of sort of helping each other understand what it might be and how it might be and how we might get there, which is the dark art of of a lot of creative, uh, uh, certainly the best creative kind of enterprises is where two, three, several parties are working together on something that no one quite knows what it's going to be. Um, there isn't one you can go and point to. There isn't one you can go and look at. Uh, there are just sort of fragments of things, uh, anecdotal evidence, bits of reports, and a lot of a lot of clarity around what you don't want it to be. Um, so, kind of coming around to your kind of specific question on on the food, um, which really relates to the idea of this not being a retreat. Um, uh, ultimately, um, we looked at some very nice projects which have been recently finished at that time this is around 2014 um and uh we we kind of witnessed the way they were being used we had we worked with a writer social kind of historian called ken walpole we employed a filmmaker to converse and to interview residents in existing arms houses that we had access to to build up a picture of what their lives were like, what they valued, and things that they thought were very much overlooked by people who weren't in their situation. So we're talking about people who don't have a lot of choices, people who one of the most incredible comments I remembered was uh, from uh, a, a man who had had a troubled life, uh, suffered with a lot of addictions, and he said, the great thing is when you get to 65, it gives you the chance to reinvent yourself, to start again. Mm. And starting again for some people is about putting pasts behind them. Starting again for many of the residents is losing their loved ones. Mm. Uh, and as you said, Carolyn, which I found very moving, um, eating on your own and cooking for yourself can be one of the most soulless things once you've lost the people or the person around you that you spent every meal pretty much cooking or eating together uh so we we recognize that for a lot of people in this area uh being moved to the margins of the city or out to the coast was not something that they wanted to do they wanted to live in a busy urban central environment amongst people that they knew or places that they knew and have access to those via buses and the kind of transport you described uh, directly. And so the almshouse started by, in a way, being the kind of the inversion 
of a traditional arms house where typically the houses are arranged in a kind of C shape and at the very back of the site furthest from the street is either a chapel or a small meeting room depending on who uh, paid for the arms house that's how it traditionally works some small collective room and what we did is we sort of flipped that over and we put the collective rooms as you've described them beautifully right onto a busy high street with the bus stop uh, directly outside mm. um, and we wanted to break down that stigma of uh, of what an older people's uh, accommodation might be like and when uh, Martin Craddock joined uh, the charity is the chief exec group, which was probably about halfway through this process. So a lot of things were already in place. Uh, Martin said, I don't really want a kitchen to cook food for the residents because uh, we've done that at other places. And sooner or later, everyone just gets fed up with that. It's just, it doesn't evolve. It doesn't bring other people in. It doesn't bring other voices in. You know, it just becomes a little bit stagnant. And it's about, that's really about provision rather than inspiring. And Martin said, what I'd like to do is I'd like to actually have a cookery school where people cook together and they eat together and they share their different cultural experiences and their different stories. And in a way, as uh, Sophia was just describing, um, food becomes just one vehicle, like a like a walk together or something like that, where it allows people to start to speak more openly about their experiences and their memories and things that matter because ultimately this is all about how you get uh 65 or so residents to speak to one another mm. in a way that they can't do when they live on their own i mean that is at right at the heart of this thing is how do you build confidence and opportunities for people to share I think that's very, very, um, I also find this very moving. Um, I mean, I've written about the relationship between food and architecture and a good life for about 20 years now. And I can honestly say I've never come across a building that brings these things together more powerfully than Appleby Blue. I mean, I think it's it's really extraordinary what you've done. And what I love about it is that it's just at the beginning. It's It's all full of possibility. You know, this is a a set of, 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 opportunities that can evolve over time like a good garden actually and of course you've got this wonderful roof garden which is part of the building and it's already I have to say <laughs> extremely generously planted and looks rather better than my roof garden does at home but um you know this I, I spoke to the residents I mean Sophia I'm very kindly invited and organized for us all to come you know to see the building and the residents cook this delicious pasta meal for us and I was chatting with them afterwards, and there's a group, and I'll ask you about this, Sophia, in a second, you know, who who were completely already signed up for all of this, you know, and couldn't wait to sort of get going, and they were already fully engaged. But they were also very aware that there were other people in the building who maybe were less confident or, as you say, were just mourning a loved one and maybe wanted to be a bit more withdrawn and just be in their flat. And, of course, what's brilliant, and I do think this is a brilliant building on many levels, I think one of the things that you've achieved, which is extraordinary, is that Appleby Blue makes room for everyone. You know, it makes room for the party, the party goers, you know, who sort of do the, the just keep fit classes and wave to the bus passengers going past. And it makes room for people who just want to be quiet and want to watch the weather go past and contemplate. 
Um, and of course, those groups are going to merge and change over time, just like any society does. And I think using food as a theme and not just food, but the generosity of the spaces that you've been able to create. And I want to make sure we talk about how that how that generosity was achieved, because I think that's really critical to the building as well. But the layeredness of it, you know, the fact that there's all these different opportunities from full on partying at one end to, you know, maybe the chance encounter that can happen in one of these corridors at the other. So so in order not to sort of just talk too much about a building I'm very enthusiastic about, Sophia, back to you. I'd love to ask you about how I mean, you've got a programme going forward. You've got lots of plans. How how do you um, plan through through food and the work that you're able to do at Appleby Blue to sort of you know, work to do do this very thing that you're talking about, uh, use food um, to bring to bring people together and grow the community. Yeah, it is interesting that you you mentioned the word program and how do we create uh, something. We are actually uh, we, we we're not only an amazing building doing amazing things. We are also doing a research project with mm. the University of Bournemouth, and um, and basically it's all about. Uh, what Stephen was talking about, uh, well-being, uh, activities, good food, and uh, we're quantifying the quality and, uh, and you know, all the effects that uh, having a, a healthy life in a, in a setting like Appleby, what does it bring? And we want to just like share our knowledge so that more people do what we're doing already. And uh, so in terms of doing a program, we are not... We have got an approach that is, is not like from us knowing and people not knowing. It's, it's completely the opposite. It's about co-designing with the residents. We are creating a nice group of um, of, of, of the, the residents in the, the of different backgrounds who are being part. Uh, we're, we're meeting with them and we are having um, meetings. Uh, over food, of course, and uh, and we're just going to be co-designing um, activities that are related to food, uh, maybe storytelling, remembering old dishes, remembering flavors, and uh, and also gardening, because as uh, Stephen very well, he he put it so clearly about the the relationship with nature that that building has, and it's something that I personally believe is really strong that having that relationship with nature in terms of um, the building, that the building looks really natural, and uh, also to do with uh, gardening, uh, life things, things like a garden, cooking, all of these things, it's just, it's just something that grounds us. Mm. And uh, so in terms of make, making a program, we are going to be working together the garden, the cooking, we're going to be growing food, we're going to be using some of that food, Either to create a pantry or to uh, or to do nice dishes uh, for for the community, and uh, but everything is going to be done with consul uh, consulting within cons consultation with uh, with the residents is uh, is not a top to bottom attitude, completely the opposite. Mm. I mean, again, that is just so refreshing to hear. And as I say, I felt the enthusiasm of the, the residents um, when I when I met them um, a few weeks ago. And and you know, this the, the, this idea that the building is going to evolve, you know, and that the society and the community that you're trying to build is going to evolve. I think it's very much what one feels when one goes there. And it's very difficult. I mean, it's so interesting how difficult it always 
is to put what works about a building or about society into words, but there's a sort of openness about the building and a kind of a sort of non-prescriptiveness. I mean, I think, Stephen, you talked yes. about the specific... Oh, Sorry, can I interrupt? Uh, you're talking about the openness of the building, and that's mm. something I wanted to touch as well, mm. is that uh, we are talking about, we have been talking about the inside of the building and the residence and all of that. But in terms of openness, the building is full of windows because we, well, maybe Stephen can talk more about this, but the idea is that uh, the building is not enclosed only to residents. It's mm. about interacting. So we are going to invite uh, lots of projects from around Bermondsey, and, uh, and we, we, we want to have people to come, young people, children, young adults, families, to come and interact. So maybe Stephen can talk more about all this, all this thing about the building inside and outside. Definitely. And I think this is yeah. something that's, again, one feels, you know, as an architect, you, you read a building and you read the degree to which it's designed to sort of welcome people in, or the degree to which... Um, as my old professors used to say, you know, buildings can feel like a kind of pinball machine and humans are expected to behave like the kind of the peas in the pinball machine. And this is the opposite. It's, I mean, Stephen, you talk about, and, and Sophia, I will come back and ask actually both of you about how the building sits in the city and actually sort of, you know, it, the community that you're trying to build here is not just in the building. It's it, it's with the broader community of Southwark, with the, the various... Um, projects that United St. Saviours also works with, um, and indeed the, the, the broader city, and in fact the residents were very keen to talk about the walks they were doing around the borough together and the, the fact they could easily catch the bus into town and all the rest of it. So I will come back to that, but I just want to sort of link it specifically to the architecture for a moment. Um, and, and Stephen, you, you talk about sort of wanting, trying to make spaces that are less prescriptive, which I thought was really interesting. And you also talked about sort of creating interstitial spaces between the home and the street. So this is something you've deliberately tried to create, as it were, with, you know, that sort of um, kind of very dramatic black line that appears on the plan that decides where a wall is going to be and where a space is going to be. I mean, is that something... I mean, also, I'd like to sort of just chuck in while we have time... The, the sort of the sense of generosity that I feel in the whole building. Um, if you could just, you know, tell us a bit about, you know, your 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 process there. When we set up the practice, a lot of the work we did was around public space uh, with the London mayors and the 100 public spaces and the Olympics. And we looked at, I mean, we spent a lot of time looking uh, and talking to people and uh, again, it wasn't lost on us that the kind of best sort of continental spaces that everyone alluded to was somehow very different to the kind of public spaces that started to appear around London, which were largely delivered in private developments. And in a way, there's quite a lot of encoded behaviour in that. You know, if you want to sit on that seat, you must buy our coffee or buy some of our food or, you know, or there are some seats put out for you to watch this big screen because the rugby's on, you know, in a way there's lots of control. Um, and we've possibly all had experiences where uh, when you pull a camera out in certain places, it certainly used to be the case before mobile phones, uh, someone will come out and ask you to stop taking photos, you know? So this idea of this very porous public city, you know, in many ways is it's certainly less, informal and casual than you're led to believe and i think when we approached this arms house 
um, we were very we were very sort of sensitive to the fact that people make choices about where they want to be and how they want to be. And those choices change over the day with various moods um, from feeling maybe quite confident, sociable to feeling maybe quite uh, down and uh, and a bit low. Um, and not everyone wants to join in and some people want to join in a lot. So rather than having a traditional sort of setup where you have your your flat and then you have somewhere that you all go and eat, which are both quite prescriptive between the sort of uh, the more public and the more personal. Uh, we felt there was a whole series of kind of thresholds between those two, which were, you know, which which moved away from a more prescriptive sort of institutional feel. Uh, so I guess that's all about this idea of making choices uh, and creating different atmospheres or different outlooks uh, for people to choose to occupy at different times. Um, so I kind of think of them as these sort of deep thresholds where things don't happen on a line. You know, you come off the street, as you described, into a sort of generous two-story garden room between the street and the garden court uh, at the heart of the almshouse, you know, um, and there aren't just a whole series of locked doors or a little barrier, or there isn't, and the charity were really clear about this, there isn't a reception. You know, you don't report to a reception like you do at the doctor's or at a school or something like that, you know. Uh, you can walk in and there's a kind of, you know, there's a kind of an, an opening at the heart of this. And to some extent, I think what you're talking about, Carolyn, is a kind of, I guess there's a sense of incompleteness through variation. Um, and I guess that idea that people in a way, they sort of complete things through their actions and their own imagination. And, and that's just about knowing where, you know, I guess the limits of what architecture can do, which, you know, to some degree is quite, is, is quite measured. Um, and not thinking, as you rightly say, uh, and I know those tutors that, uh, <laughs> because you create some beautiful route between A and B, people mm. will be drawn through it. Uh, cause that's just not how life works. They might walk through it if they need to go and buy their paper at the other end of it or something like that. Mm. So that that's kind of, I think we ended up with these sort of deeper thresholds where, for example, outside, uh, of everyone's kitchen window in the, um, in the walkways, and I'll pick up your point on generosity with that. In the walkways, everyone gets a kind of uh, a, a, a wooden bench with two, uh, uh, two or three people can sit on, uh, and it's uh, and it looks out onto the garden court. It gets very good light, uh, and you can open up these big sliding screens. So if you wanted to, the sounds of the water that you described in the garden court, or the birds, or just a bit of background hum from the traffic, or the aircraft, whatever. Uh, is part of that space. So it's a kind of extension of the garden up to the front door and the kitchen window of the apartments, uh, which means if you don't want to be in the room with everyone and doing the cookery school, you can just sit with a neighbour uh, and be in a kind of, in in a sort of an intermediate sort of place. Or like you say, you could go onto the roof garden, the second floor where there's some small dining niches for smaller groups to eat together or potter around and meet a friend. There's like, a, there's, there's a gradation of opportunities to meet or share um, depending on 
just who you are and what your mood is. And the generosity that you talk about came out of, I mean, again, very practical things about listening. When we talked to some residents in one of the charities of that, um, a, a, a more modern almshouse, uh, it was a purpose-built one which they just took over um, from around about the 80s. Um, we asked the residents, you know, how did they find their private balconies? Because all of the rooms had to have some private external space. Uh, and they said, well, you know, the last thing you want to do when you live on your own is then go and sit on a balcony on your own as well. Um, so we talked about this idea of making the walkways, which give you access to everyone's front doors, uh, and they they encircle the garden court, the courtyard at the heart of the project. Um, uh, we said, well, what we spoke to the planners and said, rather than meeting this provision for, um, you know, personal space with balconies, what if we brought that? area into the walkways and made them more generous had seats had some planters and actually made that a kind of part of the collective living rather than another form of isolation and um you know and, and brilliantly they they said that that in this instance that makes good sense mm. i mean again there are so many things you said there that resonate with me and i think you know maybe the greatest thing of all is this idea that you know, a building is is just the beginning of a conversation. It's like an opening of a dialogue. And, you know, there is no such thing as standard unified human who's going to behave in a particular way. Everybody's different. I mean, I I don't think I've ever been to a building, honestly, where I, when I was going around it, and it is so explorable, and it's like, oh, what's over there? And, oh, you know, there's a lovely looking walkway there. And I, I just, I've never been to a building where... I, I kept changing my mind about which my favourite bit was. <laughs> you know, I'm definitely going to sort of be sitting in those garden spaces, sipping my white wine at three o'clock. Oh, no, I'm not. I'm going to be sitting on that gallery overlooking the buses and waving at them, you know. Oh, no, I'm not. I'm going to be, you know, it was just, it's, there are so many possibilities there. And I think, you know, what you've captured in the building is really what is, I mean, what, what you know, if you like Jane Jacobs was talking about when she was talking about, you know, the ideal street, Hudson Street, you know, that she lived on in New York. And it's kind of this, as you say, this gradation of possibility from the private to the public. You can either be out there kind of having a beer and chatting to your mates, or you can be quietly observing it from the window on the third story, or you can just be ignoring it and listening to birdsong. And to have captured that range of possibilities in a building that's relatively modest, I mean, it's 57 units plus two, two study flats, um, I think is a really remarkable achievement. And it says something about... You know, the fact that the whole time, you know, you had people in mind when you were designing this. And people is, as I say, not a generic unit. It's it's individuals with their own lives and stories and memories. And one really feels the openness, of the, the receptiveness of the building to people to make it, as Sophia was saying, you know, with her programme, food-related programme, to live in it as one does in a city. A city is not prescriptive. A city is a place for humans to come together and make society together. Um, and, and that is the degree to which I think the building really succeeds, you know, as a piece of city, is that it has that extraordinary richness, heterogeneity, potential. Sophia, I want to come back to what you're saying, because you, you, you spoke very passionately about bringing people in from the outside. And I know that you're actually looking for partners actively to sort of expand the work you're doing. Do you want to talk to us a little bit more about that? Oh, yes. Um, well, basically, um, we are managing the, 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 the kitchen space, the garden space, and um, 
we could be do it all ourselves, but we also believe that it's, it would be very nice to have people from outside um, to see what people have to offer. So there might be some community groups out there um, to do uh, people who work with food, people who work with gardening, people who might want to work with both, people who think the way the, the, the way we're thinking. And, and I think it would be very interesting to have a dialogue with people and, and, and see what they have to offer and uh, see whether there might be an opportunity to create partnerships because it's always very enriching. You can, um, you know, the more you, 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 you expand your, your horizons, the more you discover. And then uh, some people have got wonderful ideas. So I'm very keen to hear from people um, from outside if they want to, you know, if they want to have a nice project related to food and gardening. I want to do something amazing in a very, very lovely uh, building. Um, do come and get in touch with me. <laughs> mm, fantastic. Yes. That's very yeah. exciting. Yeah. I mean, it again, is. The, the sort of, um, you, oh, sorry, go on. No, I just wanted to mention about what uh, Stephen was talking about, the um, the generosity of the, of the spaces and how uh, we have had experiences already of people who... Yeah, as you say, you know, they might be shy, they might be uh, wanting to keep themselves to themselves. And uh, funnily enough, they always come out into the into the court, into into the, the, the little walkways and they have their breakfast in there. Look at the look at the sky. And um, our very first uh, resident, he, he, he was not very well and uh, he came over and um, he had an extra few weeks of really happy life because uh, he he loved the flat loved sitting outside enjoying that generosity that the space gives you that you have these incredible views he used to have his breakfast there and then he declined and sadly he passed away but uh, we have heard from the family that uh, Apple B. Blue gave him that extra bit of happiness in his life and that's quite uh, quite nice very emotional uh, and you're speaking directly about something that I feel about the building yes um which is that it is about love it is about a good life we live in this horrible world of value for money and this is really i mean i think the reason i'm so moved by appleby blue and not only the building i have to say but the that the whole way it's been approached and supported by united saint saviors the fact that there is this recognition i'll tell you another story i I went to um, make a TV program, slightly weirdly, about Park Hill, the very famous sort of housing estate in Sheffield many years ago. And there's so much to say about it and so many lessons to draw from it. But one of the things that I found really fascinating is that it was incredibly successful to begin with. And one of the reasons was they moved entire streets of people who'd been living together in what were actually slums directly onto these streets in the sky. And it was brilliant. It was like the group I met who were already cooking with you, Sophia. You know, they, they really felt a sense of community. But over time, they started to die and that thinned out. And then critically, two things happened. They moved in a group of people from another estate, and I'm afraid it was a sink estate and a lot of people with problems. And they took away, this is the really critical bit, they had an amazing social programme to begin with. They had a community club, they had pubs, they had a school, and they had people like you, where people could go and just talk and, to, you know, the sort of community backup um, of social services. And those were stripped out for cost reasons, and the thing completely collapsed. And I think it's 
it's so interesting. It's not, I mean, it's not just about the architecture, even though the architecture is critical. There has to be the social aspect. There has to be this extra input. And I mean, just to make another general point about where we're at in the world, you know, capitalism strips the human out of everything. And, and that's why I think it's so wonderful that Appleby Blue, I mean, apart from the amazingness of the building itself, it has this, you know, funding to, to allow people like you, Sophia, and also the research pro program that you talked about, who were actually going to try to, you know, look at, see, learn from the experience of how, how the building is inhabited over time and, and turn that into actual knowledge that we can use in the future. So, so to, to go back to the money thing, the boring money thing, I want to actually say, ask you, Stephen, um, how, how, did, how did that work? I mean, you know, because it's, I know there wasn't a huge budget, but there's a bit of budget and, you know, sort of, that seems to me to be, make the absolutely critical difference. I mean, where did, where did that come from? How did it happen? Well, it was, it was, it felt like quite an enlightened approach, actually, Karen, it was, um, it was a it was a three way sort of um, it was a three way negotiation where there was uh, a private residential development planned for a site in Bankside uh, directly adjacent to Tate Modern uh, with a high rise high value private residential building and uh, and uh, uh, and some office space. And the developer didn't want to provide uh, any social housing on the site. Uh, and what can happen where sites are smaller like that in, in inner cities is the developer can pay some money to the local authority. So the local authority, in this case, the London Borough of Southwark, would then use that money to go towards providing social housing in another location within the borough. Um, and so in this instance, the local authority, uh, rather than taking that money and putting it into some pot, uh, had a site that they owned, which had a, a sort of abandoned care home on it from the 60s or 70s. And, uh, and what they suggested between themselves was, uh, what if uh, this money were used, uh, so it's public money, is used to build uh, uh, some new accommodation specifically for older people uh, uh, in social housing um, on the site that we own. Now, local authorities don't want to take on the burden generally of looking after older people. Uh, and the third part of this triangulation was uh, United St Saviour's Charity, who were looking and had uh, good connections with the local authority, were looking to... Uh, commission and run in perpetuity old people's accommodation. So the basic financial arrangement was uh, we had to do a development which sat roughly within the financial uh, uh, brackets of social housing budgets, which could justify that public money was spent to build the almshouse, that the almshouse uh, got a contribution to its cost from the charity, uh, and then, uh, and the land was purchased from the local authority at uh, at a kind of uh, uh, a kind of properly established rate, and then that building would be run in perpetuity by the charity, and and there lies a kind of you know a kind of a virtuous triangle, 
Um, I mean, the reality is, uh, and you know, it, it, it's not always easy. Uh, there's a there's a terrific kind of project come out of this, but you're still relying ultimately on the private sector to deliver your kind of social infrastructure. And I think there are challenges in that. Uh, I think in this instance, it's it's come out pretty well. Um, but I do think it took a kind of a really extraordinary set of circumstances. I think that is repeatable. I think using Section 106 money to provide uh, older people's accommodation is something that should be explored further. Mm. Um, and I think I think that's really also about where I think what you're also sort of alluding to is where does where does value, uh, which is partly economic and partly kind of value for money or values for money, where does that exist or where where is that where does that conversation exist? Because usually it will just be about cost and the cost parameters. In this instance, um, it's been about creating something which is uh much more than a provision for older people it's actually about creating something which could open possibilities for people who've been in really quite poor accommodation and very isolated to actually have a much more joyful uh later life uh, and out of that to give other people opportunities to join in with that to learn and contribute and share in that um and so the value which we explored was um uh, effectively creating the sort of courtyard garden at the heart of this project with the walkways all around it. You know, that in itself creates almost a whole extra facade to the building, as well as the one that's outside to the streets around it. Um, and to say that having, you know, this little bit of nature at the heart of the daily movements and lives of the residents would be so enriching and so sensual in you know in uh, in a, a relatively tough urban environment which is good for all forms of well-being and stimulation uh is had a value you mm. know and so i'd say overall the development sort of probably it was probably at about 15% more than your kind of basic social housing provision, you know, it was at the upper end of the bracket without a doubt. And we did a kind of benchmarking thing where we we took a number of projects and looked where this one sat in that. And um, um, but yeah, but I think what we've been talking about so far uh, on this is, is that it has for that extra 15 percent or whatever, it has completely transformed value. Mm. I, I think that's absolutely brilliant. And I think, you know, th that's something else that I feel about this building is that it has lessons that resonate way beyond what it is, you know, way beyond the fact this happens to be sheltered housing. Uh, Sophia, I'll bring you in in a sec. But I mean, just to say that, um, you know, the the exactly what you're talking about, you know, I, this reminds me that there are so many resonances, for example, just the fact that, you know, thank God, the government finally decided they're not going to close down most of the ticket offices in railway stations throughout the country. You know, this is a tiny thing that has huge, huge resonance. We need human contact. We need the sense that, you know, that, that the people who sort of control our lives who are invisible to us actually care, actually had us in mind. And as you say, you know, the provision of that beautiful, I have to say, garden in the middle of the project. It is transformative. 
you know, you walk in and you suddenly go, okay, wow, okay, this is not life as I normally know it, what's going on. You sense it. That bit of that 15%, as a, as a sort of accountant would call it, is, is infinite in terms of the way it makes you feel. And, and this is such an important lesson. Um, Sophia, you wanted to, to come in on that, sorry. Yeah, just uh, going back to that 15% and uh, <laughs> the comment before about the quality of uh, of this man's life. Uh, I mean, how do you quantify mm. somebody having a really good end of life? And also, not only that, the people who are moving, who are living there, we're, we're getting constantly, constant comments about how much their life has improved. The other day I went to, I just knocked on people's doors to invite them to the Jollof Rice and uh, every single person invited me to their flat because they feel so proud. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it's, 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 how do you quantify that? Is it 15%? Is it 125%? I don't know. But it's, it's, it's something that, uh, and, and, and the, the, the research project, we're, we're trying to quantify this somehow because we want to, to prove that having good housing standards can extend people's lives and that has an impact on things like the NHS, I guess? Oh, yeah, big time. I mean, I, I think, as I say, this is, this is profound. It is about value, as Stephen said. It is about the fact that we live in a society that demands that everything is quantified. And yet, as you rightly said just now, Sophia, everything that really matters is unquantifiable. You know, what's the quantity of love? What's the quantity of care? What's the quantity of a good life? These things are beyond numbers. And yet I think in this building, I mean, you really have, you know, both the, the, the team, you know, Steve and you who originally conceived it, your collaboration with United St. Saviors, you know, the, 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 the team now that are there, Sophia and, you know, others who are sort of helping, helping this thing become a really thriving community. Um, you know, you feel it very strongly. And I just think it's it's something that is really, really important that, that people sort of understand and learn from and we can take, you know, beyond. Because as, as Stephen says, um, this is repeatable. You know, it, it doesn't take that much. It's just it's just saying we are going to have the ticket offices, you know, particular sort of obsession of mine, you know, or... You know, I, I, another one, bus conductors. You know, what I loved the days when there was a bus conductor and you know, this is a human being that's just there and you can just pay, pay him or her your money, but they're also there in case, you know, somebody needs help, they help you with your bag. It's just the everyday stuff of life. And this is what we all need. I mean, Sophia, you'd said something very interesting about the way, you know, the, the building brings nature into the city. And I mean, I think this is something that I'm very passionate about, you know, food as a sort of medium that sort of reminds us that, you know, as Aristotle said, we're political animals, which, you know, which sort of says that we need you know, politics, i.e. society on the one hand, but we're also animals and we need nature. And, you know, I think what the building brilliantly does is bring those two things together, you know, and shows how just with, you know, imagination and a little bit more you know, kind of trickle down from this appalling capitalist system that we're stuck with at the moment, you know, and and a sort of really caring, caring about people and caring about society. You know, we can, we can, you know, create something remarkable and beautiful. And I mean, what you said moved me so much, giving someone a beautiful few weeks of their life. You can't do anything more important and it's a privilege to 
had this conversation with you and to have witnessed the birth of a building that I think really does speak of the deep possibilities of architecture beyond the actual stuff of the building. So thank you both so much. Um, good luck with the future of the building and the community. And I can't wait to visit in a year's time when um, the, the sort of, <laughs> for the repeat of the Joloff, um, whatever may ensue. Um, I was going to invite you to Joloff Rice next year. <laughs> we'll do it before I'm, that. I'm there. I'll, I'll, I'll invite you to Joloff Rice or whatever. <laughs> um, I, 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 I actually can't overstate how important I think this building is. And um, thank you so much. And, and and also to the people who were not on this podcast, to, you know, just United St. Saviours, Steve Platts and Southwark, who I know sort of bought into the whole project and understood what it could be. You know, we live in a very grim world at the moment and this building gives me hope and this project gives me hope. So thank you. I want to thank you all thank you. for sharing it, especially you, Caroline, still beautifully sharing this conversation, which I've been listening to uh, in the background. And some of the words that came to me as I uh, listened to your stories was um, agency, the agency of, of people who live there having the choice, uh, the choice of spaces, the choice to cook or not to cook, uh, dignity, you know, this respect and generosity throughout these spaces and connection to the elements, to the garden, to each other, uh, to the city. Um, so uh, this podcast is really about the, we talk about the spaces between the buildings, the spaces, you know, beyond the buildings. And, um, and I, I really appreciated this conversation today. So thank you all. This podcast has been brought to you by The Developer, produced by Simon Mercer, with music by Fortet.